Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful day. I've got, uh, I hope you're having a great day. It's nice and sunny here in the greater Twin Cities area, so I'm loving that. And I know many throughout the Midwest are getting dumped with lots of snow, so I hope you've been able to shovel your way out and get back to normal life as best you can. I've got my Bible open to Psalm chapter 73. It says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My guest uh, on our studio line is Rob Bluey. Of course, he is my Washington, D.C. correspondent, so everything I need to know is going to um, come from Washington. And Rob's a man on the street that's going to give me what uh, what we need to find out. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be back with you today. Yeah, likewise. Um, so let's, uh, let's just catch up with some of what's going on with uh, the President Biden's executive orders. What can we learn about that? Well, he has been busy, um, in fact, uh, uh, history-making in, in many respects. Uh, no president has issued this many executive orders in his first days in office uh, than, than Joe Biden has as president. So uh, there have been a number of actions. Today, they did a number of executive orders related to uh, racial equity. But, uh, but prior to that, and on his uh, first day, uh, some of the notable ones were rejoining the World Health Organization, um, uh, reversing President Trump's uh, travel restrictions. Uh, he canceled uh, the border wall uh, contracts, um, and he took other uh, immigration-related moves, uh, including on DACA. Uh, of course, the, the big one related to COVID was uh, uh, the closest you can get, I guess, to a national mask mandate uh, by imposing um, uh, new rules for, for federal grounds and buildings and what, uh, what uh, employees will have to do to, to be in compliance. Um, and uh, and a whole lot more, Bill, uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, and uh, and many other things, uh, big and small, that I think even surprised uh, some of us who uh, were paying close attention to what uh, what uh, Joe Biden has said before becoming president and uh, what now President Biden is doing. So uh, I think that the thing that uh, that strikes a lot of Americans is is just how quickly they are moving, and and I think in many respects it's to undo policies of the last four years. Uh, which doesn't necessarily come as a surprise. I mean, so much of what President Trump did early on was to reverse uh, the Obama administration's approaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's um, it, it's particularly alarming to to those who who want to see some of these things more thoughtfully debated and deliberated in Congress, and not necessarily all done by the executive branch. All right. So, where are we with the COVID relief right now? Are checks going to be coming out soon for people? Uh, well, uh, the, President Biden has said he's going to give Congress two weeks uh, to negotiate. Uh, Democrats have control of both the House and Senate. Of course, the margins are, are narrow. Uh, mm-hmm. The House, they can't afford to, to 
really lose many Democrats there. And uh, and I don't expect that they will. The House tends to uh, be able to get things through. It's the Senate that proves more problematic. Uh, you have a number of moderate Democrats who may not be willing to go along with all of the proposals uh, that Biden has put forward. Um, and if a Republican Republicans uh, hold firm and all 50 of them oppose, uh, you find yourself in a situation where the vice president, Kamala Harris, would need to cast the tie-breaking vote. There's also this little thing in the Senate called the filibuster. And uh, we've talked about the filibuster in the past. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, was attempting to uh, get the Democrats to make a commitment to preserve the legislative filibuster. That requires 60 votes of the Senate. There are 100 senators. Um, so you would need those 60 votes in order to pass legislation uh, like the COVID relief package that President Biden has put forward. Now, the, the challenge that, uh, that the Democrats face is there's probably not 10 Republicans in the Senate who would go along with the package as it's currently written. So they're looking for other ways and other rules that they might be able to use in the Senate to push it through. Um, that would require some changes uh, from the parliamentarian to perhaps do that bill. But, um, you know, it all depends if, if uh, you know, it's going to be a contentious few weeks in the Senate. We've got an impeachment trial starting in early February. And I think uh, President Biden probably wants to get this COVID package done before then. So we'll take a close look at it and see uh, ultimately what happens. But um, Americans won't be getting those checks quite so soon. And how much they end up getting, I think, will be dependent on negotiations. Mm-hmm. At breakfast this morning, I was t- trying to explain the filibuster to my friend, and he, his eyes were glossing over, so I don't know how good of a job I did. <laughs> but when you need 60 votes to pass major legis- legislation, what is minor legislation? Well, all, all technically... Um, all legislation is, is, will need to, would need to go, including nominees for a long time required. Uh, it wasn't really until George W. Bush became president that they really tested uh, nominees against the filibuster. And there were nominees like Miguel Estrada, who was a judicial nominee who ran into interference from Democrats. And because he didn't have the support of 60 senators, couldn't make it through. Of course, years years later, Bill, Democrats were the ones who um, who changed the rules on nominees uh, during the Obama administration, and then, of course, Republicans changed it when it came to Supreme Court nominations. So the rules have been changing quite a bit. So I wouldn't be uh, surprised if your listeners are are a little confused as to to what uh, necessarily gets um, that filibuster test. But yeah, right. Essentially, a, a package like this, the the the, the that would require uh, changes in, in law and to U.S. code uh, like the COVID relief package would, um, that, that is uh, something that would traditionally need to be approved by um, a, a filibuster-proof 60 votes. Now, there were things like the Trump tax cuts that made it through with 51 votes. And you might ask, well, how could they do that? Mm-hmm. And that's because there are certain things that are subject to the Byrd rule, uh, named after Robert Byrd, a, a longtime senator from West Virginia, uh, that, uh, that are able to do so. So the Senate is very much about process and procedure. It always has been. The Senate is a place where the founders wanted things to go to cool down a bit. Uh, the House was very reactionary and would pass legislation very quickly. And the Senate is where you would have long debates uh, on a range of issues. And I think that that sometimes frustrates the American people who want quick action on things. But at the end of the day, I think that uh, our founders desired uh, a little bit more compromise, and they didn't want just the majority party to have the final say on everything. Um, So it gave the minority party, in this case Republicans, uh, the ability uh, to force that, that kind of negotiation and compromise. And so uh, in this case, like let's take an issue um, like the Second Amendment. 
there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party who would like to impose gun control and restrictions on on, on gun ownership. And uh, and if you didn't have uh, the filibuster, they'd be able to do that relatively easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but the filibuster requires people coming to the table and trying to actually negotiate. It's not to say things can't get done. Plenty can still get done. But it does require our lawmakers and our Republicans and Democrats in Washington to actually talk and try to work out their differences. Mm-hmm. Rob, I heard the expression power sharing agreement. I didn't know what that meant. Well, so because you have a 50-50 split in the Senate, which is something that's only happened a handful of times in our history, Mm -hmm. uh, that means that uh, you have everything from the committee structure, you know, how do you, who in a 50-50 Senate, who is the chairman of the committee? A Republican or a Democrat? Well, Mm -hmm. naturally, in this case, it's going to be a Democrat because there's a Democrat uh, in the White House and and the the president of the Senate is, is the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. So they looked back at the agreement that was struck between Senators Daschle and Senators Lott in um, in 2001, when this is the last time we had a 50-50 Senate, and they came to an agreement where there was generally a balance on these committees. Uh, now, the sticking point was over the filibuster, though, because Republicans were holding out for, uh, for, for trying to get some agreement from, from the Democrats. The Democrats refused to concede that, but Mitch McConnell, the Republican, said, because two Democrats have said that they will oppose any efforts to get rid of the filibuster, that would be Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona, uh, he's willing to go along and make this agreement with Schumer so the Democrats could proceed with uh, with, with their organizational package and we can get, uh, get on with our business. Uh, the Senate's been operating uh, all along. Uh, it's not that things had grind to a halt. They've been approving uh, President Biden's cabinet nominees. Uh, they approved uh, Janet Yellen. Uh, and Anthony Blinken most recently, and there's more on the horizon. So uh, things are moving at a, at a quick pace. And actually, Bill, there's not as much gridlock as you would expect. So far, the nominees that have been approved uh, for President Biden have been overwhelmingly bipartisan. Hmm. There have been anywhere from 10 to 15 no votes from Republicans. This is a stark contrast to what happened four years ago under President Trump when nearly all Democrats were voting against these nominees. Um, And I think it just goes to show that Republicans are trying uh, to find agreement where there there can be agreement and uh, and not necessarily uh, put up roadblocks unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Rob, when you talk about Manchin and Cinema um, talking about their intention to not do want to do away with filibuster, that is just their intention. That doesn't mean they couldn't change their mind and vote the other direction. That's right. This is just statements, public statements they've made. Mm-hmm. Uh, they believe that um, that both of them are moderates. Uh, so as, as, as Democrats go, so they, I, I think, recognize that um, one day they may very well in two years, in fact, might be in the minority and they might be in a position where they would like to leverage some of their their power. Bill, there's there in recent years there have been these things like the Gang of Eight, or right now there's this thing called the Gang of Sixteen, and it's these group of senators who band together, usually Republicans and Democrats, and they try to to force uh, these negotiations and and get things um, in in legislation. Republicans like Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski might take part in these, along with some of the Democrats we mentioned, and so. It's an opportunity for them to exert more power uh, than they might otherwise have as one of 100 by banding together with other lawmakers. And so I think that they see some advantage in t- sticking with the rules that, um, that have guided the Senate for so long. Uh, and yet there are others on the outside, uh, maybe on the more conservative or liberal uh, 
edges who um, would prefer to uh, to go in a slightly different direction. So we shall see what what ultimately happens. But right now, uh, the filibuster is still in place. Republicans have been successful in maintaining that. And unless the Democrats uh, force the issue, I expect that it, things will be continuing uh, at a status quo for the most part. Mm-hmm. Rob, uh, after a short break, we'll, we'll come back. I've got a bunch more questions for you. Rob Louie is my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can always head over to dailysignal.com. Check things out. We'll be right back. back with Rob Bluey, my Washington, D.C. correspondent. So glad to talk to him on Tuesdays to get the show started. A couple questions come in, have come in from listeners, uh, Rob. Uh, Terry says, um, uh, with Biden intent on flipping all of Trump past policies and the flurry in which many have already overturned, does this imply a real threat of packing the Supreme Court with liberal judges? It's possible. So the the Constitution does not specify a number of Supreme Court justices. There are there are some who would like to introduce legislation or a constitutional amendment which would do that, either to preserve the number at nine or to expand it. Um, the number has actually fluctuated throughout our history. Uh, it's been lower. It's been higher at times. Uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously tried to to do court packing to get his New Deal programs. Uh, uh, approved uh, at a time when there was a more conservative leaning court. So uh, it'll be a challenge. Uh, that's that, that because it's not easily done uh, as, as nothing is Bill, you know, these, mm-hmm. these days. But um, one of the things that, that your listeners should know is that um, first of all, we'll, we'll be closely watching, watching if there is a Supreme court vacancy, that's, that's one way if, if a, you know, if the justice retires or unfortunately one passes away, as we had happened this past year, uh, there will obviously be an opportunity for, for President Biden to put his stamp on the court for, for years to come, uh, just as President Trump has done and Obama and Bush before them. Now, the, the thing about court packing is this is, again, where the filibuster comes into play, because it's a question of whether or not if you get rid of the filibuster and you get rid of that 60 vote threshold, could the Democrats with 51 votes uh, be able to approve additional justices for the court. And and I don't think right now there's an appetite to do that. Um, but perhaps, you know, in, in two years or some future date, there there might might be. So I think it's something that we should all be aware of. And I think that anybody who's trying to do that to the court, uh, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, should think, uh, think carefully because we don't want to become, we don't want to politicize the court in a way uh, that every time there's a new president elected, they keep expanding it, you know, <laughs> to the point where, um, you know, it, it becomes something other than it was intended to be by our founding fathers. Mm-hmm. Another listener was curious, Rob, about is there been a statement from the Vatican uh, that has some kind of ramification toward uh, President Biden regarding his position on certain things that the Catholic Church deems evil? Uh not sure of a specific statement from the Vatican. I do know that there are there are there are there is a controversy about whether or not, um, while serving in the White House, uh, should uh, President Biden uh, receive communion and and things of that nature uh, because of differences of opinion with with the Catholic Church on issues like abortion 
and uh, and some other issues that you know have animated. I mean, just what we we didn't talk, Bill, yesterday about uh, some of the executive orders related to transgender individuals, including um, reversing President Trump's uh, directive on on transgender and those suffering from gender dysphoria serving in uh, the U.S. military. So mm-hmm. I do recognize that there are some differences. Um, this is uh, he, he's not the first Catholic president, um, and so I. I don't expect there to be much controversy because I think the the bishop here in the Washington D.C. area has said that he will not um, he will not deny him communion and things of that nature. But it's an issue that I expect will will be on the minds of uh, of many religious Americans um, because they uh, recognize those those differences and and it probably could be animated even later this week when you have a large number uh, of Catholic Americans who would typically make the trip to Washington D.C. for the March for Life. Uh, the March for Life has gone virtually, like many things in our in our society today, because of COVID nineteen. Uh, there will be a smaller march still taking place this Friday in Washington D.C. Uh, president Trump spoke at the March for Life. He was the first U.S. president to do so, and uh, there will be a stark contrast this year with a different uh, president with a different uh, uh, political beliefs on the issue of abortion than we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Some of the words that get used were Amy Coney Barrett was a, a radical. A Catholic, or had a radical view, and and President Biden has is a devout Catholic. So it's just interesting how some of the words get used. It, it certainly is. I mean, he he is known as somebody who uh, regularly attends church on, mm-hmm. on Sundays. I, I think that um, that's a you may disagree with his politics. I think that's a, a positive uh, for for those of us who. Uh, who believe in a higher being and who believe in God and um, and and hopefully a role model for others. Bill, you and I have talked about it in, on the show in the past about some of the troubling uh, poll numbers that we see about younger Americans mm-hmm. um, losing faith, uh, yeah. not regularly attending church services. Um, so I, I, I pray that maybe there will be an opportunity to to reverse uh, some of that trend. President Trump was was not somebody who who regularly attended church. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and obviously with COVID, I mean, it becomes a little bit more challenging. I think he'll be doing this mostly from the White House, at least at the beginning. But we'll see where his term term takes him, and we'll see if there's other um, other challenges that that may arise. I I think that these are these are just two of many issues that he'll be confronted with, and uh, and and have to make some tough decisions about um, about what his religious belief says and what his uh, political allies want him to do. Mm-hmm. Rob, talk about the House and the Senate. Uh, regarding some of the changes they want to make to the uh, electoral laws and the elect the election system. Oh, well this is this is a big issue that I expect when the house returns from its recess next week will will be uh taking up. Uh it's called um HR1, that's the the bill number for the People Act. Uh, I would say misnamed <laughs> because it's it's it does anything uh but give gives power to the people. It actually federalizes and in many ways micromanages uh, our election process. Uh, which has typically been administered, which historically, not typically, historically has been administered by the states by uh, really de- t- making a much more centralized approach that gives Congress a lot more control. And I think based on what we just saw in this last election, this is a, the entirely wrong way to go. We, we we want to make sure that the power is with the people and at the local and state level and not centralized in Washington. That's when the problems uh, seem to uh, to become uh, more uh, more more you know, <laughs> challenging for, for, for our country. And so uh, what would this bill do? But it would do, it would do a variety of things. And, uh, and, and among them, it would uh, create, it would, it would take away the ability of states 
uh, to implement everything from early voting, uh, voter registration, and it would it would federalize that. And I don't think that um, that that's the direction that, that we should be going uh, when it comes to um, uh, state voter ID laws. Something that we've strongly advocated for, uh, both at the Daily Signal and and the Heritage Foundation. Uh, you know, that's that's a big issue. Uh, that's a, a politically divisive issue. I don't think it should be. Uh, you, you, an idea is required for for so many things in society today. Um, we've, we've seen it work successfully in many states. We've seen courts uphold it. But that's a divisive issue that if Washington uh, gets its hands on it, you may uh, you may see some some changes in that regard. So we're watching it closely. Uh, we expect that this is again going to be a top priority of at least the Democrat-led House of Representatives. I don't know if uh, it'll have the same level of support in the Senate, but um, but certainly this Biden administration would be would be supportive of it if it made its way to the White House. Mm-hmm. What's going on in uh, in the courts? I know there was um, protection for doctors. And that yes. was a big victory, wasn't it, for religious freedom? It, yes, thank you for bringing this up. Uh, yeah, there there was a, a, a decision uh, that came out of the uh, U.S. District Court um, out of North Dakota, so a federal court. Uh, it involved a um, a group of plaintiffs uh, that were made up of Catholic nuns, uh, a Catholic university, and Catholic healthcare organizations, and they sued the government, actually the Trump administration, uh, for um, its enforcement of a section of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, and that forced doctors to perform transgender interventions against their religious beliefs. So we were just talking about this in the context of Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Well, this court, um, citing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, decided uh, that it would uphold the conscious protections for those doctors, and it struck down this transgender mandate. So uh, we'll see where it goes from here. Obviously, the change in administrations at the federal level uh, means that they uh, might take a slightly different approach uh, upon appeal and, and as the case proceeds. But it's uh, it was an important victory, nonetheless, um, for uh, for these doctors and the legal organization, the, the, the Beckett Fund, that uh, represented them. Mm-hmm. This is kind of out of left field, Rob, but how, why can the Flat Earth Society still be on Twitter? Aren't they spreading disinformation? Yeah, Yeah, well, well, this is, uh, Donald Trump is still banned from Twitter, still banned from Facebook. Um, And and Bill, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, But it does lead to questions about others who are are on the platform and appear to be uh, in violation of their service. Well, I'm just curious. I mean, can't in a free society you kind of see and believe what you want and then allow people to believe or not believe what they want? I, I absolutely agree with you. I think one of the things that we need now more than ever is critical thinking in our society. I think the American people um, <laughs> should have the personal responsibility to make decisions uh, for themselves. They, they shouldn't have uh, people interfering in that process. Now, there are some bad actors on these platforms uh, who are, are doing maybe engaging in criminal behavior. I agree that there should be rules that they enforce. But I think that in some cases, Bill, uh, you know, it, the rules have been uh, enforced unequally. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think we're all going to be watching very closely what Facebook and this oversight board decides to do about President Trump. It's mm-hmm. going to be probably three months before we know. But that decision will have ramifications uh, for years to come. Yeah. Rob, I'm sorry I make you do all the talking, but it's exactly what my listeners want. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Bill. It's great to be on with you again yeah. today. Thank you so much, Rob Bluey. My Washington, D.C. correspondent's been my guest. Executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can always head to dailysignal.com. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to learn all kinds of things about cybersecurity. I've got an expert coming on. You're going to enjoy this.
I know you have a computer or a smartphone, maybe, maybe not. But if you do, I bet you've got questions like, what is this? Am I, should I be agreeing to this? Should I be clicking the yes? What happens when I get an email that looks suspicious? I don't click on that. You never give your information out. And if you've got a question about cybersecurity, I've got an IT expert on the show right now. His name is Ben Paulson. He's Director of Enterprise Infrastructure and End User Support. That's quite a title. Does that all fit on a business card, Ben? Uh, barely, but we make it work, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. I just want to invite listeners, if you've got a cybersecurity kind of question, something about your phone or your computer, send me the text, 877-933-2484. You know, Ben, I'm thinking about all kinds of questions relative to being online. Let's say, for example, you go on a new website and you want to sign up, so you create a username and then when you go to type in your password, they give you a suggested password, which looks really complicated. And then my thought is, do you click yes to that password because that's the most secure? Or do you say, no, I'll create my own? What do you recommend? You know, passwords are kind of one of those uh, first lines of defense in many areas. And, you know, many users, uh, many people have created a lot of bas- bad passwords in the last many, many years, and we're starting to understand just how bad our passwords are. So a lot of companies are trying to encourage their users to create strong passwords. So sometimes you see one of those little password-o-meters mm-hmm. on the sign-up page, or yeah. sometimes you get the suggested password, and you know there's nothing wrong with those suggested passwords. Um, the, the bigger concern, or the recommendation, is ultimately create a password that's easy to remember. Um, some of the uh, national information security guidance out there is suggesting that people create longer passwords or actually even pass phrases. Ooh, I like that. What would be an example? So a lot of times what you do is instead of having one word, you'll have multiple words strung together. Um, and again, it, it just needs to be memorable. Think of maybe like a sentence. What I, what I actually like to tell people is for, for anybody who has young kids or has young grandkids or is around young kids, Think about when they were starting to learn how to talk and some of the sentences they would spit out Yeah, and and maybe use one of those. For example, my, my four-year-old the other day said, I want new news for Brexit. <laughs> I want frankly, that's, new news for breakfast, for Brexit. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I know, I know how to hack into your account now. It's, uh, it's, it's long. <laughs> it has multiple misspelled words. It's easy <laughs> to remember. Uh-huh. Um, and so passwords like that are, are generally a lot better. Um, you know, passwords that have meaning to you, but aren't aren't easy to guess, aren't easy to break. Okay. Um, so that, take, that's, take advantage of long passwords, in other words. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And and along with that, you know, I'll just suggest, again, um, keeping track of all those passwords is also a, a really critical part of that. Um, I like to use a, a password safe called LastPass or KeePass to keep track of them all. Um, it's a secure way to keep track of them all so you're not writing it down or forgetting it or or using something that's easy to guess. All right. Okay, Ben, let's say I'm online and I go to a website and something pops up that says, you need to accept these cookies. Now, should, mm-hmm. I, should I accept them or should I only accept them if they're providing cold milk? <laughs> if they're providing cold milk, I mean, I generally accept cookies. With oh, that. thank you. Yes, I would too. 
<laughs> but what am I allowing um, in, and is it smart? And am I putting myself in at risk for ads I may or may not want, or information? Do they have access to my information then? Sometimes yes and no. You know, the the gist of cybersecurity is it's it's an ongoing balance between risk and convenience. And so cookies are one of those really convenient things. They're little helper files that help websites store information about you while you're browsing. Um, they come into play if you're on a website and you click the little stay logged in button or the little box that says remember me. Or even when you're shopping on a, on like Amazon and you have stuff in your shopping cart, those are all using cookies to keep track of that. And generally, they're safe. Um, oftentimes, they're helpful. They help, they help with the convenience. Um, but there are downsides to them. A lot of them are used for advertising practices. They track your usage. Um, and sometimes malicious software can get on your computer and use that information against you. So in general, they're, they're safe to enable, they're safe to allow. But if you're concerned about it, again, if you, if you want less risk, you can certainly decline those. You can disable them. Okay. Most of your browsers will have a security setting where you can clear them out. You can get other software that will will go through and clean those out on your computers if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, here's another question, Ben. So let's say I'm in a coffee shop back in older days when you could be in coffee shops, and you go those on the their, days, huh? their public Wi-Fi, and mm-hmm. then I've heard that you shouldn't use public Wi-Fi unless you're using a personal VPN. What in the world does that mean? Yeah, so public Wi-Fis are, are tend to be hotspots for... Uh, malicious people to try to get access to information. Um, A personal VPN is a service you can sign up for, and what it does is it encrypts the traffic. It protects it. Okay. It kind of locks it up in a digital protected tunnel and between your computer and that service, and that can help you browse a little bit more safely if you're in a public area like a coffee shop or an airport. Um, Oftentimes, however, if, if you're on a website that is secured with a certificate, or if, if you ever look up at that address bar at the top of your browser and you see the HTTPS colon backslash backslash, mm-hmm. that indicates that there is um, some security built into that web page already. And so that there's a little less risk to those sites. But again, if you're talking convenience versus risk, it's convenient to just go to the websites when you're at those locations, but you reduce your risk, and it's a little less convenient, but you reduce your risk by signing up for one of those VPN services, and then turning that on whenever you're at a, a coffee shop or an airport or another public Wi-Fi area. Mm-hmm. A listener just jumped in. Would you say more about password-saving place storage? Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like when I save a password, it's going to be in my little uh, keychain part of my folder on some application hidden in some other place where I can eventually go find it if I need it. <laughs> Correct. Yep. Some browsers will give you the option to save this password, um, which is generally safe. Um, but there are other services like uh, I like to use one called LastPass. There's another one called KeePass. If you search for those on Google, you'll get you'll get right to the right website. But those are secured, encrypted services or applications where you can enter in passwords and and links to different websites. And some of those may have a browser extension that when you go to that website, it'll automatically pop that username and password in there for you. And they, again, these days, you've probably got dozens and dozens of logins and usernames and passwords. And um, keeping track of all that can get a little challenging. And one of the password safes 
out there can really help you keep track of everything. I like that. All right, uh, Ben, if you would talk about uh, what a f- what fishing is or what smishing is, or both of them. Sure. It's fishing, smishing, vishing, other ishing words. Yeah, anything like they're that. All, really good. They're all different forms of what's known as social engineering. And ultimately, it's it's using different methods to trick you into providing information that you really shouldn't be providing, or it might be tricking you to download some malicious software on your computer. And ultimately, it's all to gain access to your information. So phishing is when it's done via email. Smishing is when it's done via text message. Vishing is when it's done via the phone. Um, Things to look out for, especially if, if you get an email for something that seems too good to be true, if you get an email or a phone call that you're really not expecting, it's out of out of the blue, seems a little odd, you know, trust your gut instinct on a bunch of those. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if it seems out of the ordinary or, you know, let's say you get an email from your bank and it, it looks a little odd from other emails you've gotten from your bank. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the ones to be really, really aware of and be really skeptical about. Um, especially with, with emails, you know, if you get an email and it says, click this link, you know, usually you can hover your mouse over that email, that link. Mm-hmm. And in the bottom left corner, it'll usually show you exactly what that, what that URL is, where it's actually going to take you. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't look like what you're expecting it to be, you know, that's when it's probably safer to delete it. Yeah. A couple other things to be really aware of, especially now that we're, we're coming into tax season. Um, this is where we start to see more calls or emails from the IRS. The IRS doesn't Did you just make air quotes? I did. Okay. (laughs) I did. Uh, I thought you did. I saw saw air quotes. Um, The IRS doesn't call and email you. So if you get a call that says, I'm from the IRS and I need you to verify some personal information, chances are that's not legit and you should hang up on them. Other times, if you get a call and they say they're from your bank or another company that you trust, you know, it's okay to say, hey, I don't know that I trust this. I'm going to call you back. And you can hang up and you can you can look up the phone number that you know or trust from the Internet or your Rolodex or your phone or wherever you have it and, and call them back and, and verify from them. Like, did somebody just try to call me? And if so, can you connect me back to them? And that's a good way to kind of verify that those calls are are actually legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, a bunch of questions are rolling in here, Ben. Uh, how do I check what security I have on my computer, and why do I get emails that say my security software has expired? The emails are in my junk mail. Mm-hmm. So most common security software you might have is going to be an antivirus program. Yep. Um, a lot of computers will ship with them. Uh, some of them will have some sort of paid subscription. A lot of times, especially if you buy a brand new computer, sometimes those will come with like a trial version of it where it's only a three-month trial maybe. And some of those, if you did sign up and pay for an antivirus program, you know, maybe it's one of the new yearly subscriptions that has now expired. Um, Maybe it's the trial that was signed up for when you bought the new computer that now expired. You know, there's a lot of different options for antivirus software. Um, There's a lot of good free options. Um, Actually, the the built-in... Um, antivirus that comes with Windows these days is actually pretty good, mm-hmm. but there are, you know, dozens of other security software that's available for your computer. Um, you know, we could probably talk for hours and hours about uh, the good ones, but if you're concerned about it, um, 
you should be able to open up whatever antivirus program you have installed on your computer, and that window should show you right away if it has an issue, if the subscription has expired, if, if there's another problem for it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily trust the email itself because, again, that's another way to uh, fish you for information. If, if you get an email that says your antivirus expired, enter in your credit card information here. Uh, that's one I would be skeptical about. And that's where I would try to find the actual program on my computer itself and just verify that uh, before I responded to any emails or, or contacted any companies yeah. about it. Which raises a great question, Ben, and I think what we'll do is we will address it when we come back from break. And the question is, what should you never do online when you talk about you know giving filling in your, your credit card information in response to something like that? That's for certain a no-no, but I want to find out what else you should never do online, Okay. Uh, Ben Mm -hmm. Paulson is my guest, an IT expert, and if you want to ask a question to Ben, I'll do it on your behalf. Send me a text, 877-933-2484. Again, the show. I've got Ben Paulson, an IT expert, director of enterprise infrastructure and end user support right here at the University of Northwestern. During the break, I just booked him to a five-year deal. So I think there's a lot of questions, Ben, that still need to be answered. Let me ask you this. You, you go to a web page and by the simple, uh, uh, by simply landing on a web page, are you at risk that because of the ads that are on that web page, whether you click on them or not, could somehow get into your system? Generally, generally you're safe. Okay. Uh, for most of the websites that most of us visit, just visiting the website on its own is generally going to be safe. Uh, a lot of the malware that you'll get on your computer is based off of an action where you click on a link, whether it's in an email or on a website. Usually it's the act of clicking on something that then triggers that download to your computer, which then lets the malware run free. Um, that said... There, there are definitely websites out there that just logging onto the page will trigger a download, and that's why having that antivirus software on your computer is, is really important. But for most of the time, for most of the websites you're, you're visiting on your day-to-day basis, you're generally safe um, as long as you don't click the things that you're not familiar with, you don't trust, look a little uh, inconsistent or, or look concerning to you. Mm-hmm. Ben, how about two-step authentication? Worth it or or an extra step you don't need? Uh, that is one that it is, it is worth every penny, and since it's almost always free, it's twice worth it. Um, like I said before, passwords are kind of the first line of defense, and that's based on information you know. Whereas that second-factor authentication, or two-factor authentication, or 2FA, that is based on something that you have which commonly will be your cell phone, where there might be a, an app on your smartphone or maybe a text message to your smartphone. And with two-factor authentication enabled, even if somebody gets access to your password, if they try to log into a, a website that has two-factor authentication enabled, it's going to trigger a code to be sent to your device. And if they don't have your device, they won't be able to get that code and enter it in and then actually get into your account. So two-factor authentication is something you should all enable everywhere it's available. Okay. Again, it's it's 
it's again the risk versus convenience. It it's a step back from convenience because it's one extra thing you have to do, but it significantly reduces your risk. Mm-hmm. Should we be nervous about smart TVs and some of the technology that's involved with smart TVs? I think a healthy dose of skepticism is good. Okay. Um, especially where, again, back to related to cookies, there's a lot of things that are driven by advertisers advertisers desire to know what their consumers are doing Mm -hmm. and so some smart tvs are looking at ways to track what apps you're using on your smart tv or what you're watching or how long you're watching Mm -hmm. and so you know where you where you feel or where you stand on on how advertisers use that information is it's kind of up to you and where your personal convictions are at but it's i think it's good for everybody to at least understand what's happening in the background. And if you are concerned about it, there are almost always settings available on your smart devices where you can take steps to disable that activity. Mm -hmm. Ben, what is the dark web? The dark web. So the dark web or the deep web is generally, it's parts of the internet web pages that are not indexed by search engines like Google. And so it's a little bit harder to find um, some of it is even more protective, especially when you get into the, the the dark web where they're intentionally hidden and have restricted access and you have to use special software to access some of the sites that are in those locations. Um, you know, deep web on its own is not necessarily a concerning thing. However, it is frequently where some of the digital black market um, uh, transactions and uh, stores tend to pop up. And that's where you know, people starting to deal in, you know, whether it's drugs or stealing information or, or dealing in that sort of activity. Um, that That's what's kind of making it in the news these days regarding the dark web. And that is some activity that's in there because it's it's hard for law enforcement to find them. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, favor some of the security programs that are out? I mean, you can hear ads all day long of how some guy's going to hack into your account and he's going to steal the title on your house, and then you're going to be living in a cardboard box. You know what? What do you think about some of that stuff? I think some of those are, while they might be highlighting a very real scenarios, mm-hmm. and I think that they are, you know, ultimately trying to heighten our awareness about these things. Some of them go a little over the top, and and maybe introduce some fear tactics. But mm-hmm. in general, I think, you know, as we're now living in the digital age when so much of our life is happening in online websites and social media, I think it's good to have, again, a, a healthy dose of skepticism and and a good understanding of, of what you're doing online and how you're doing it, ultimately to try to protect your information as much as possible. Mm-hmm. What is the safest way to purchase something online? <laughs> um, go to the store itself. <laughs> <laughs> That's the safest it's- way for sure. You know, I, I I don't know if browsing by faith is taking it too far, but, you know, there is a certain amount of trust that you need to have for the online store that you're shopping at. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain stores like Amazon that they're, they're big and they're very well known. You know, there you can be reasonably sure you're going to be safe. Mm-hmm. You know, even Target or Walmart, you're reasonably sure you can be safe there. Um, once you start getting down the list to the more obscure stores where – Maybe the company that's running the store doesn't have quite the same financial resources to go through the effort to protect that information that they have. You know, those maybe you have a healthier sense of skepticism, but maybe not. It's kind of a personal conviction thing. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, in general, again, if you're if you have a healthy trust of who you're shopping at, um, then you you can reasonably shape shop safely without too much concern. Mm-hmm. And Ben, do you do you encourage us to have a different password for each um, website that we go on and, and sign up for? Um, or do we need to pay particular attention to financial institutions and shopping places that we use frequently? Should we have definitely have different passwords for all that and change them, what, every six months, every year? So definitely having different passwords is a good thing. Um, as many as possible, as often as possible, especially when you're dealing with websites where you have a lot of really private information like your bank or other financial institutions, um, it's good to have different passwords for those just because especially if you don't have two-factor authentication enabled, if you have a different password, if somebody does manage to get your password somehow, then they only have the one password and not the password to everything. So again, having multiple passwords and different passwords for different sites is good. That's where having a password safe is good to keep track of all of those different passwords. Mm -hmm. Um, Appreciate that. Um, a listener said on Sunday on the way home from church, I Googled a couple of verses and sites. Uh, none came up. Each came with a message that IP address needed to be verified. This has not happened before. I have an iPhone. That sounds like a very interesting situation. Um, and it, it could be a matter of where you were browsing from. You know, if you were in the car and traveling along the countryside it's it, it's possible that the website itself um, was looking for IP addresses it's not expecting. Okay. So every device has an IP address. I'll try not to get into too many of the details, but a lot of uh, a lot of companies that run websites are are taking steps to protect their services. And one of those things that they can do is to use some use a system that basically verifies IP addresses before it lets you actually connect. And sometimes you run into addresses it doesn't expect, Mm -hmm. and that that could very well be it. Yeah. Ben, two listeners uh, back-to-back just have asked me, is purchasing safe with PayPal? Generally speaking, yes. I'd say as safe as um, any other online website. Um, PayPal is, they're a very large company. They've they invest a lot of money in protecting their users' financial information. Um, I am not aware of any specific uh, issues or or anything that would prevent me from trusting PayPal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think PayPal in general is safe. Now that said, PayPal is one of those services where there's some more directness in who you're who you're sending money to, mm-hmm. and so that's one of those along with several of the other payment apps that are popping up now. If you're, you know, buying something from Facebook Marketplace or buying something from Craigslist, where you're you're sending money directly to another person, that's one of those where you want to maybe take some extra steps to verify that the person you're sending the money to is really who they say they are. You know, whether you call them on the phone ahead of time and verify the information, or or message them somehow ahead of time just to verify that that they are who they say they are, and you got the address right, so you're sending your money to the right spot. Mm-hmm. All right, Ben, we just got a uh, two minutes left, so maybe in conclusion, you can just summarize what you should never do online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the big one, the really big one overall that encompasses a lot of cybersecurity is just be really, really particular about providing any information 
especially your private and protected information like credit card numbers, social security numbers, birth dates, to any to anyone or any website that you don't trust. You know, if, if there's a inherent amount of trust in where you're where you're sending it, you know, that's okay. But if for some reason you don't trust it, I would hesitate to send any information to there. You know, the the other two are again don't use the same password everywhere, create unique passwords. And another part of that is don't use any really easy to guess passwords. Like don't use your birthday, don't use your anniversary, don't use your, your kids' names in a row. Um, <laughs> and, and related to that is, you know, in general, I would say just think twice about what you post on social media, whether it's Facebook or, or another social media platform. If you have passwords or if you have, you know, a lot of sites ask you for security questions when you sign up. Mm-hmm. If your password or your security questions use a birth date or your first pet's name or your grandkids' names, and then you're posting all that information yeah. on social media with pictures saying, here's my favorite pet and here's my awesome grandkids, you know, there are people out there who will try to who will try to take that information and then try to use it against you by trying to guess your password with it. Yeah, yeah, really helpful. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been uh, quite an education for all of us. Appreciate you very much. Nope. No problem. I'm glad to do it. Yeah. Ben Paulson's been my guest, my IT expert. We'll have him back on. I think there's lots more questions still coming in. That's all the time we have for right now. We're going to take a short break. That is going to mean hour two is just ahead. Todd Mulliken is going to be joining me for the whole hour. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.